Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. There are plenty of big birds in the world, but what bird is the biggest? Well, when it comes to identifying the biggest bird, you need to do a lot of analysing of fossils and bones. But first you need to ask the question, why or how do these big birds occur, and where? What makes Madagascar so special that it can have several of the largest bird species, and how do we classify them? We dive into the giant birds of Madagascar this week. Everyone likes big things, whether it be the Big Dipper up in the sky, or the Big Pineapple up in Queensland in Australia. Large things, maybe something that's an absolute unit, always attracts a lot of media attention. And if you're a big bird, no, not the one that lives on a New York street, but rather one that lives in the real world, what is the benchmark for the biggest of the birds? If we want to be hypothetical about it, you could say that, well, maybe we count the dinosaurs all the way back then as the largest of the birds. But the ones that we have around today, we have things like the emu, the cassowary, the the ostrich, they're all pretty large. Or maybe some of the large condor or hawks. We wind the clock back just a little bit to the mighty creatures such as the moa and the harst eagle from New Zealand, we get to some pretty large megafauna birds. But what is the largest bird? Well, we actually have a name for that type of species, because the largest bird species we found are known from a family which we've described as elephant birds. And this is the thing that you may have recently seen in the news. Yes, you see, on the island of Madagascar, some very unusual and incredibly large birds used to roam the ground. Yeah, you see, these elephant birds weren't just elephantine in size, but also in nature. These large herbivores used to consume an awful amount of food. But now, after much review and debate, scientists have actually classified and separated out all these fossils, which some of them actually don't date back from too long ago, only a thousand years. They've classified all these different large birds that were found on Madagascar and have identified a species that rightly takes the cake as the largest bird, weighing in at, in the largest specimen that we found, around 750 kilograms in weight. Now that is quite large, you have to admit, almost a ton, pushing up there with the size of an elephant, rhino or hippopotamus. So what exactly is so special about Madagascar that the largest bird and the second largest bird and third largest bird all ended up coming from there? What makes it so special? What other large things are hanging out there? Well, we're going to dive into the topic of island gigantism, as well as island dwarfism, and look at a little bit of the biodiversity and history of Madagascar this week in the Grange Pond. Now, Madagascar is a country in the Indian Ocean. It's a large island, very, very large, in fact, in size. When you think about it, it's slightly smaller than France, but bigger than Spain, which is a pretty large landmass. And what's more surprising about Madagascar and its position off the east coast of Africa in the Indian Ocean is that most likely the recent settlers that we can find evidence of didn't come originally from Africa. The Austronesian peoples from Borneo sitting out in canoes were actually the first to reach that in one of the large waves of Polynesian expansion, which is quite an impressive feat of migration, if you think about it. 
and that occurred around between 350 BCE and 500 CE. Now, there's a bit of dispute about whether or not there's archaeological remains dating back as early as 10,000 or 16,000 years ago, but formalised settlement was actually established only comparatively recently. And peoples from Africa, the Bantu migrants who crossed across, came across from Mozambique, the Mozambique Channel, didn't actually get across there to about 1,000 CE. So Madagascar has been an island pretty much in and of itself for a very large part of its history. It's got a very diverse climate, very large size, and that has meant that there's been a very unusual environment, one which has allowed for the development of some pretty interesting species. Now, the island of Madagascar didn't break off from Africa. Actually, it's broken off from the supercontinent Gondwana, and where it broke off from was actually what has now part of India. Basically, if you want to imagine the triangle shape approximation here of India, and you have the right-hand side and the left-hand side, and the right-hand side, Sri Lanka broke off, and on the left-hand side, Madagascar broke off and has been growing closer and closer to Africa ever since. But that happened 88 million years ago. But over that time, there's been an awful lot of species of megafauna that have been living on Madagascar, unchecked and removed from pretty much everything else. Because of the nature of the ocean currents, the flow and the weather, there wasn't much colonisation for species all the way from the mainland of Africa. And all the way over in Asia is a very, very long journey indeed. Possible for human navigators, very hardy explorers of the Austronesian peoples, but a bit harder for animals to make that trek unassisted. So with all that in mind, and given its large size and varied topology, Madagascar emerged as basically an interesting example of what happens if you leave species unchecked. And that has led to some very, very unusual development, as well as an incredibly diverse and rich ecosystem. For example, Madagascar is a biodiversity hotspot. Over 90% of its wildlife, and that includes plants and animals, are found nowhere else. And that's because all of its species are mostly endemic. And that means they're found in one geography only and nowhere else. And that's because, firstly, Madagascar is so isolated. And secondly, the development and the regions of Madagascar are also very distinct from each other. Which means you end up with species that over 88 million years have developed specifically for that niche that they're found in. And that means you end up with an incredible variety, thousands of different species all living in their own type of area. For example, there's over 200 different types of mammals, 230 different types of reptiles, 300 types of birds, all specifically developed in this region. 14,000 different types of plants, all endemic to Madagascar. And that is one of the reasons why it is so internationally recognized for its biodiversity and is important for conservation efforts as part of the United Nations. Now, that's all great for Madagascar, but what does that have to do with the development of these crazy large birds? Well, it has a lot to do with it, in fact, because when you have an area that's cast off on its own for a very, very long period of time, you end up with an unusual behaviour, and it doesn't just occur in Madagascar, you can see it in other islands. Basically, this phenomenon is called island gigantism. If you take a species that's and then make its home 
naturally, there it lives normally, isolated, and remove things like large predators or other creatures that might compete for in the same space. Maybe another competitor in for herbivores or maybe a large predator that would eat them. And if you give them unchecked access to a large amount of natural resources, these species tend to develop into very, very large sizes. This is called island gigantism. Now, there's a couple of good examples of that. The harst eagle and the moa in New Zealand, in our neck of the woods here in Australia, is an example of a bird basically developing to become very, very large in size because, well, there's no natural predators there for it, except for this incredibly large eagle which got to eat all these fattened up enlarged animals. Now, what's interesting about this phenomena, Madagascar, is that it wasn't just the birds that sort of took on this growing and enlarging role. If you think about one of the most iconic Madagascan creatures, and if you've seen the movies and television shows, you'll be aware of the lemur. And Madagascar is home to a large variety of different types of lemurs, over a hundred of them. But in Madagascar, because of its isolation, lemurs have sort of moved into territory that in other parts of the world are taken over by monkey. They've taken that primate niche that another species had and grown large. In fact, there used to be megafauna lemurs that are very large, you know, two meters in size, almost like the giant sloth. There was also some very large Madagascan hippos that were, again, very, very large in size. And the Madagascan hippos are an interesting case because they are likely to have actually migrated across from Africa, one of the few rare examples of a species to do so. Another one is the fossa. Now, the fossa looks like a large cat, but it's not actually. It's more in like a large mongoose, it comes from the musculated family. And that meant it sort of grown into this large cat-like predator, like a puma or a lynx or a mountain lion because there's no natural competitors for it. So it's evolved to fill that space and grow correspondingly in size. And the same thing has happened with these large flightless birds, these elephantine family of birds. Because there was no natural predators for them and because the food in the region was quite plentiful for them, they grew large and larger in size. And that's where we see this large distinction between the two couple of species of elephant birds we're talking about here in this latest research. Now, when you think about island gigantism, there's also often talked about the opposite direction island dwarfism. And there's a lot of interesting examples of species that have found themselves marooned on an island and then over a long period of time shrunk and shrunk and shrunk themselves. Now, island dwarfism is basically a similar phenomena to island gigantism that obviously has impacted many species on Madagascar, but it has a key difference. Island dwarfism occurs normally when a species from somewhere else gets stranded on an island, whether that be a literal island in an ocean, a island in a desert, or like an oasis, or in a cave, or maybe an island in the sky, an isolated mountain region. Anytime a species sort of manages to find its way into that environment, they often start to shrink, and they do this for several reasons. The first is that in the tropics, being smaller can help you better thermoregulate, which is incredibly important if you're on a tropical island. The other part about this is that if you're smaller, 
then you need less food, which is equally important if you're a herbivore or a carnivore. You need to hunt less prey. Now, these both things led to a whole bunch of species shrinking when they get to these isolated islands. You think of a woolly mammoth as a pretty large elephantine thing roaming the plains of Kazakhstan and Siberia. But actually, you can find mammoth remains on islands of Crete and Cyprus, except they are very, very small in size, an example of island dwarfism. Another one is the King Island emu. Now, in Australia, we have emus, which normally stand around two metres tall and can be very devastating, especially if you're the Australian armies fighting the emu wars. But on King Island, which is an island nestled between Tasmania and the mainland of Australia, there were some emus present on there. They sort of ended up when Tasmania was still connected to Australia via a land bridge. That land bridge, over time, moved away and we ended up with all these islands, stranding a few of those emus on King Island. And what happened to them, like in another island, Kangaroo Island, near South Australia, these emus shrank in size. So instead of being 2 metres tall, they were now 500 millimetres tall, a large drop in size. Now, what's fascinating about island dwarfism compared to island gigantism, which is what has been impacting these birds in Madagascar, is that island dwarfism can happen much more rapidly than island gigantism. And basically, the rationale is as follows. When you're faced with a dramatic issue, such as short amount of food supply, being stuck in a new environment where you can't escape, with not many options for food, and equally cramped space for territory. Having a fast breeding cycle, being small in size, or requiring less food, is very, very important. And you need to make that change quickly, else you die out. It basically is three to one ratio, comparing the time it takes to shrink in size, as opposed to grow in size, which means it's much faster to shrink than it is to grow. And that's pretty important for the survival of a few species. But that's not what happened in Madagascar. Unbound by the constraints of geography, with lots of food and with no predators, these creatures, these megafauna, really did reach quite mega size across the spectrum of reptile to bird to mammal. And that is particularly interesting. Now, the debate had been raging back and forward for years between scientists and conservationists about how you classify and identify all these really, really large birds found on Madagascar. And researchers and scientists working in international collaboration for the Zoological Society of London's Institute of Zoology have finally, at least in their mind, put the debate about the biggest bird to rest. And they did so in a paper published in the Royal Society Open Science. Now, what they did was actually analyze all of the different types of remains found and use some pretty complex and complicated methods of statistical analysis. Now, up till now, it was previously suggested that there were two genera types of groupings of species and up to 15 different subspecies in the category. They called all of these elephant birds identified on Madagascar. Now, by analyzing and re-examining using pairs of calipers, tape measures, thousands of bones, and a very, very complex mathematical model. Researchers, which were led by Dr. Hansford, have been analysing hundreds of elephant bird bones from museums across the globe to try and identify and classify these into different species. 
Now, it's interesting because they managed to identify and classify the taxonomy, which is, when we've talked about this before, the way in which you classify species. They found that there are actually three genera and then four distinct subspecies amongst that, which is the first time we've actually made a real solid reassessment of this family of elephant birds in over 80 years, mostly because our analysis and information sharing has improved substantially in that 80-year period. Now, the elephant bird family is the Apionithidae category of large flightless birds. And they used to roam what was now Madagascar in the late Quaternary period. There were two genera, basically groupings of species, called Apionis and Mullerinonis. They were previously recognized by scientists. And the first one, the Apionis maximus, was pretty much usually considered to be the largest bird. It was sort of identified by British scientist C.W. Andrews in 1894. But now, this even larger species, which has been called Apionis titum, was normally often dismissed by scientists as actually oh, just an unusually large specimen, not actually a different species. But researchers from the Zoological Society of London have done extensive research analysis on the bones to conclude that the shape and the size of the bones of this bird aren't just because it's a larger variant of the same species. No, no, it's uniquely different. So different, in fact, it actually belongs not to the Peronis group, but actually to an entire new group, the Verombe. And that is why it's now called the Verombe Titan. Now, these elephant birds were incredibly important to Madagascar's development, and that's for several reasons. Not only did they keep other species in checks, but they also had an enormous impact on the wider ecosystem. All that vegetation and unique plant species were spread, dispersed, and also kept in check by these very, very large birds. And without them, well, Madagascar is still suffering the effects. There isn't a good way to spread seeds across large distances, and some species can get out of hand because there's nothing there to chomp down on them. And what this has helped us prove is that sometimes you need to re-examine some old bones to actually get good information on how a species is made up and how sometimes scientists ignore, oh, that's not really a great group of bones, it's just a large sample, it's not really a new species. But applying some new statistical techniques and analysing a very, very wide sample set, which wasn't available at the time of the initial classification, can help shed light on an incredibly large and diverse group of species. And just as to make a point, the Verombe, in terms of its size, could reach weights up to 800 kilos. I think the mean in the species distribution is around 626 kilograms. But that is much larger, incredibly larger, than the mean of the other species that they tried to group it in with, which is more around, around the 400 to 500 mark. So it just goes to show that if you want to be a big bird, your best bet is to be on Madagascar. Because that's where the very, very large elephant birds did Rome. Now, while researchers from the Zoological Society of London's Institute of Zoology, led by Dr. James Hansford, were poring over all of these bones of the Verombe Titan, they worked with a number of researchers, including Professor Patricia White from Stony Brook University, 
And when they were analysing all of these bones from the Madagascan elephant birds, like Apiorinus or Muloronis, they found interesting cut marks and depressions and fractures along the bones that they were studying. And these are very, very interesting because these are consistent with the hunting and butchery techniques often used by prehistoric humans. So when they noticed all of these strange markings on the bones, the next thing to do was, of course, use radiocarbon dating techniques. And what they found from this is that these birds had been killed at a very, very interesting point in human history. Now, for the most part, as we talked about earlier, the first human presence, not necessarily settlement, is pegged to be, until this study, around 2,000 to 4,000 years ago. But the evidence from this study provides some solid clues and geological and archaeological evidence that humans were on Madagascar hunting and butchering birds as far back as 10,500 years ago. They make basically the earliest known signs of evidence in humans on the island of Madagascar. And that's pretty incredible, come to think of it. Because Madagascar had all this megafauna, giant elephant birds, hippos, giant tortoises, giant lemurs, the fosses, and they all went extinct less than a thousand years ago. And it's not been clear about the extent of human involvement in what caused these extinction. But it does clearly show that at the end of the Ice Age, when humans were using stone tools, groups of humans managed to arrive in Madagascar. Now, where they came from, we won't know because we can only look at the bone markings. That doesn't give you any clear indication of whether or not they came from the sea route all the way over from Borneo. Or did they come from across the short hop from Africa? It's not clear at this stage. But it's very, very clear that humans have been on Madagascar in some form or the other for almost 11,000 years. And that, in and of itself, is pretty incredible when you come to think about it. So this is some great example of how studying one part and the aspect of a species can yield more interesting clues to the development of our planet. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From island gigantism to island dwarfism, we've talked about big birds and small birds and how they've developed along the evolutionary timescales and what makes certain areas of the world best suited for them. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.